0: <laughs> Thank you, On cue. Um, so this is the second in the series where we're going to be discussing Leo Panitch and Colin Lay's new book, Searching for Socialism, the Project of the Labour New Left from ben de Corbyn. Uh, we're going to be joined by some really exciting guests for the whole of the series. Uh, last week, we were joined, uh, two weeks ago, we were joined by Tariq Ali, uh, where we discussed the experience of the Labour Party and the British left in the post-war years Uh, and this week we're going to be joined by Hilary Wainwright to talk about the experience of the New Left and Tony Benn in the Labour Party around the 1970s. My name is Kyla
1: and my name is Michal and tonight Leo and Hilary and all of you are joining us in our wonderful living room. Uh, We will be hosting the call tonight and for the remainder of the series and we hope you're doing okay. Um, This series is hosted by The World Transformed and Verso Books together uh, we'll be running these calls every other Thursday night at 8 p.m. Same virtual place, same time. So remember to keep this time free and tune in.
0: Okay, so Verso have created a reading list tailored to this series. It's 50% off till May the 24th, which is in three?
1: Three days? Two days? I don't know anymore. Fast. Uh, <laughs> you have to act fast.
0: Um, so to make, make sure to order in time for the rest of the course. You can find it at bit.ly slash TWT Verso. Uh, that's going to be posted in the chat. So each webinar comes with uh, a set of short and long optional readings, as well as videos and podcasts, which you can find on the TWT website or the Facebook event. So this week is mostly going to be based on chapters one to four of Searching for Socialism. Uh, We currently have more than 230 people on the live chat, which is already amazing. Thanks for joining us.
1: Um, So in this session, we're going to be talking about the experiences of the New Left and their project to transform the Labour Party in the 1970s and 80s, uh, which in many ways was a precursor to Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015, even if they were slightly different, probably very different projects. Um, But one thing that's incredible in in reading Colin and Leo's book, uh, which we've been doing, chapters one to four were the readings for this week, um, is that all of the challenges of the movement behind Corbyn Um, are really not that new. Um, So many of the the problems that we've been coming to grips with are the same as the ones that the new left faced in the 1970s. Um, So we know Leo and Hillary were both heavily involved in those projects and the debates back then. Um, So it's gonna be fantastic to hear the lessons that we can draw on Um, One lesson that Tony Benn drew from his experience of the time, uh, which still feels just as relevant now, was that the long campaign to democratize power in Britain had to begin with a movement itself with democratizing the movement itself. Um, So tonight, we'll look at how Ben and the new left envisaged a new politics and what came of their attempts to democratize the party.
0: In later sessions, we're going to be looking at the turn to the right in the party from the 1980s, which is based on chapters five to eight of Leon Collins' new book. Uh, And then we're going to be looking at uh, international experiences, comparing experiences of the movement around Corbyn with Sanders and Syriza, Um, and then we're going to be looking at coronavirus and the crisis this time. Um, We're going to run run tonight's webinar as a long question and answer session. So we're going to talk through some parts of the book with Leo and Hilary by asking some questions to start off. After that, we hope that you'll do the work for us. When questions come for you as Leo and Hilary are speaking, please post them in the chat. Uh, We'll be watching the questions as they arrive and we will try our best to include them in the discussion. We plan to spend the first 45 minutes or so on the new left in the 1970s and then the remainder of the time bringing things up to date by looking at the relevance of these issues today and to our own political project.
1: Uh, So finally, before we begin, I want to quickly introduce tonight's speakers. Uh, Leo Panage is back again with us. He is Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy and Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University. Uh, he's been the editor of the Socialist Register for 25 years, and his many books include A Different Kind of State, The End of Parliamentary Socialism with Colin Lays, and The Making of Global Capitalism with Sam Gindon. and of course, Searching for Socialism also with Colin Lays. Um, and also joining us tonight, uh, we're very happy to have Hillary Wainwright. She's the editor of Red Pepper, uh, the author of countless books on the left and the Labour Party in Britain, uh, including her most recent book, uh, A New Politics from the Left. And she has been a real inspiration to all of us here at The World Transformed.
0: OK, so without further ado, I'm going to kick off this session with a cu- with a question for both of you, Hilary and Leo. Um, so in the last session, we looked a lot at how, um, the, in the post-war era, the emerging Cold War served to marginalise and demonise the left, uh, but there were also political and financial pressures that closed on in on the government and dampened the hopes raised by the post-war Labour Party in the 1950s. Um, Hilary Leo, one thing I loved in reading about both your books is how all this started to change with the new forms of activism that sprung up in the 1960s. Um, so these kind of new forms of unionism, as well as like, these kind of new social movements, um, and how these new forms of activism eventually burst into the mainstream into mainstream politics and really tried to shake mm-hmm. it up. Um, Hilary, there's a great quote from you, taken from E.P. Thompson, about it from a 19th century artisan, where you say, "People, or where he says, people mm-hmm. fancy that when all's quiet, that's all that all stagnating. Propaganda is going on for all that." it's when all's quiet that the seeds are growing. Um, So tell us about these seeds that we were growing. Who were these movements? Where did they come from? And what were the issues that were most important to them? And what was their vision? Um, Leo, should we start with you?
2: Larry's quote, I thought you'd start with her, but uh, sure, let's talk about this. Uh, uh, By the uh, early 1960s, Uh, The first really massive uh, social movement, uh, even before the American Civil Rights Movement had emerged, which was the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and that was built uh, very much with the active involvement of the old labor left, the Tribunite left, if you like, the Bevanite left. Uh, And um, the the major splits in the party between the leadership and the left focused around uh, the Labour Party's embrace of the American informal empire uh, and all that went with it in terms of the Cold War and the nuclear arms race. Uh, There was a fight in the 1950s around already then about whether to get rid of Clause 4, the commitment to common ownership. Uh, because most of the party leadership had by then accepted Anthony Crossland's view of what had happened to capitalism by the 1950s. Um, uh, I think I've said before that Crossland's the future of socialism said that if you weren't a Marxist in the 30s, you were a mental dwarf. That was his word. I hope disability activists will forgive me. Uh, But by the 1950s, that was no longer relevant because the capitalist class no longer controlled the state, uh, because there was a balance of power between labor and capital, and because within the capitalist class, finance was no longer a power. Now, you see how absurd that was, even for the 1950s, but it was in that context that uh, the German social democratic party dropped its commitment to socialism um, and, and the Gates wanted to move in that direction. Um, what exploded in the 1960s um, was uh, both a follow-up to the campaign for nuclear disarmament, uh, but took it in, in entirely new directions. Movements which were oriented to anti-war concerns, of course, the enormous anti-Vietnam demonstrations and campaigns, uh, which some of the largest in the world were in Britain. Uh, But alongside that, uh, movements for women's liberation and gay liberation. um, And on top of all of that, a tremendous uh, outpouring of militancy on the part of young workers who were often going on unofficial strikes against their union leaders. Uh, And that wasn't only a matter of yes, wanting to be able to consume more, uh, and certainly they were wanting to do that subject to all the consumerist propaganda uh, by the 1960s, but it was also about resisting changes in the labor process, which were uh, draconian and often authoritarian. And under conditions of full employment, young workers as well as the young activists who built these new movements uh, were quite insubordinate. And the labor leadership, including the old left, were largely estranged from those new movements. Uh, They weren't part of them, They, they, you know, might have in a vague sense endorsed their goals, but it was a different political culture. Uh, both amongst the young workers and amongst uh, the young activists. They all voted for labor in 1964. Uh, There was uh, a vast vote for labor amongst young workers who first came on the polls in the 1964 election. But by 1970, after the very conventional government that the Wilson government was, uh, those young workers started abstaining from voting in droves And young activists considered going into the Labor Party the last thing they wanted to do. Uh, I think that's the kind of background uh, that is needed uh, to appreciate uh, what happened uh, in the 1970s.
1: I think you're going to have to uh, unmute yourself. Sorry, I can't. uh,
3: I thought I had to. Okay, yeah. So I agree in general with Leo. I would emphasize a bit more the sense in which 68 and that experience of kind of what felt at the time like a near revolution, you know, was a, um, a really significant experience that shaped the consciousness of a generation for, well, I feel until... Till now in a way, I mean it's it's sort of lasting, that glimpse of a possibility, the fact that there was an alternative and that the ruling elites were weak, you know, in a way in France, without going into the detail, it felt at the time, and I was at university then, but it really did feel like a revolution was possible if it hadn't been for the constraining role of the Communist Party and so on. Maybe not true, but you know, it felt that glimpse of a possibility gave us a huge confidence that we carried through to the um, to the 70s. And I think I'd also emphasise um, something Leah said, which is this idea that the, this was all in it was against the Labour Party. So at this time, you know, Harold Wilson was um, he was about to support the, the, the LBJ and the and the Vietnam War. It was only the massive weight of that demonstration. And its impact on the Labour left that then turned them to to vote against Wilson. So, there, and Wilson was attacking, um, you know, militant uh, trade unionists. He, he was, you know, he and he was defending Sterling and the British, the British state. So he was a, a reactionary figure, and we were we were we treated the Labour Party as utterly reactionary too. Okay, there were, you know, benign figures at that time like Michael Foot, but. You know, they were like rather pathetic. Well, I mean, I don't want to imply Michael thought was pathetic, but he in some ways politically he was. And um, he might have been a literary figure, but politically, you know, he was pathetic. And um, so that that is almost like our launching pad into the into the 70s. I mean, the the seeds that 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 Thompson refers to were more the pre-68 seeds, like the beginnings of the women's movement, the way we were all reading Simone de Beauvoir, the sort of Beatniks—the kind of—I mean, this was—I think—the other thing is, this was a, a rejection of the Cold War, but with the Cold War, the whole kind of conventional, um, um, the conventions of 1950s Britain. It was a time of 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 everyday revolt, cultural revolt in the films and so on, um, but also just a revolt against authority. I mean, that that movement, particularly in Germany, was called the was called anti-authoritarian. And and it was, we were against authority. That's when you saw in a way the beginnings of a search for new kinds of democracy, participatory democracy, more horizontal radical forms of democracy, a a greater belief in in the knowledge of ordinary people. Um, That was key in the women's movement, but also in the shop stewards movement. So it was was a fundamental break. And for me, that influenced the seventies in the sense that I mean, I, have to, I think one's got to look quite specifically in different regions when we come on to discuss the movements in the 70s. Because I've, I must say, where I was coming from, I was in Tyneside, which was a very Labour place. But actually, all the struggles were outside the Labour Party, including the industrial struggles that would relate to Ben, but from a position of autonomy. That was the other thing that the 68 movements have this emphasis on autonomy—the autonomy of the student movement from the authorities who wanted to negotiate with us, the autonomy of the women's movement from other parts of the left. Autonomy wasn't the same as separation, but it meant that um, we 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 were we kind of preserved our autonomy, and that meant that the kind that shaped the way in which those who did go into the Labour Party went into the Labour Party. They went in on the basis of their movements, and this we're going to talk later about the GLC, but there you had councillors who obviously were in the Labour Party, but their key feature was that they'd been involved in movements, community movements, and that in a way their electoral politics was like a an expression of that extra parliamentary politics. So that's just to add a bit to, to what Leah said.
1: Perfect. Thank you for that. That, that, That's actually perfect. I like how that, you know, how you worked in in your answers, that sort of broad range of movements and moving all the way from the 50s up to um, to 68. Um, Speaking of uh, the spirit of 1968, the reaction to uh, consumption and advertising, before we get to the next question, uh, we want to take this opportunity to plug um, the TWT uh, Supporters Network. Uh, We know many people are in tough uh, financial situations especially right now, and we will always ensure that content like this call is available free of charge to everyone. However, if you think calls like this are important in this time of global crisis and uncertainty, and if you are also financially secure, uh, please do consider supporting TWT. Um, Every bit helps us. Uh, The coronavirus crisis poses an existential threat to independent grassroots organizations like us. Um, So if you're able to donate, five pounds a month, it would make a huge difference in enabling us to scale up and sustain our political education work like this series. Uh, You can sign up at theworldtransformed.org slash support, um, and that link will appear in the chat. Uh, Thanks so much. Sorry for this uh, advertising break, and we are back to uh, our questions.
0: All right, so the next question is mostly for Leo, and then we're going to ask Hilary a slightly related but different question about the same topic. Um, So one thing I really like about your book is that you do a really good job of debunking this myth that was said against Tony Benn, and we've had this thrown at us a lot as well, is that the left was looking to the past and failed to come to grips with the new era of globalization. Um, One thing I really liked about your book was that you describe how the Labour New Left was conceived as a response to the post-war social democratic, corporatist, social contract and the problems of that, um, and the growing mobility of capital. Um, And these are precisely the types of arguments that Ben was trying to make when he proposed his alternative strategy. Uh, So can you describe the battle over the industrial strategy during Ben's time as Minister for Industry, um, and how it was constantly watered down uh, by parliamentary leadership, and what are the lessons that we can learn in terms of kind of trying to build this kind of agenda?
2: Okay, well, first of all, it has to be said, Ben was, of course, a member of the Wilson government. Um, uh, But by uh, the late 1960s, he was already making speeches, uh, primarily oriented around how his experience in government made him realize how fundamentally undemocratic the British state was. Um, and, and how it stifled uh, any creativity, even of uh, radically oriented uh, ministers. Um, and, and right after the uh, election defeat in 1970, three months after, he published a Fabian pamphlet, um, uh, which he called a socialist reconnaissance, in which he identified uh, the main thing that was needed was for the Labour Party to get in tune with these young movement activists. Uh, If the British state was going to be democratized, then uh, you first of all have to democratize the Labour Party in order to democratize the British state. And that pamphlet, while it was oriented to going beyond the Keynesian policies uh, that the Labour leadership had ended up with as the sum total of what they defined as modernization, by the 1960s, it was mainly oriented to opening up to the new campaign groups, opening up the party to democratic constitutional changes, which could then go on to democratize the state. Um, At the same time, however, uh, there was a lot of pressure Uh, to go beyond the policy framework. And Ben, within a year, said I gave too short a shrift to the need to concentrate on policy. And that was articulated in two ways. One was that what had happened under that labor government was essentially a class struggle inside the labor movement between a government which was arguing that we can only hold on to Keynesian policies, insofar as the unions restrain their members, restrain their members' wage demands, restrain their members' limitations on the introduction of labor process and technology changes, uh, which would uh, increase productivity. Uh, and, And there were major battles between the government and the unions over this, with sections of the Union leadership, especially the Transport and General Workers, but not only, moving to the left in the face of that government. Uh, The leader of the Transport and General Workers had become a member of the government, the Minister of Industry, and left the government by 1966 after the government entered into a deal with the IMF, saying that he actually uh, uh, knew more about the plans of corporations when he was general secretary of the union than he did as the minister responsible for technology. Uh, And and you got an array of union leaders who had been close to communist party shop stewards uh, in their youth through the 1940s and 1950s, people like Jack Jones. Who were much more oriented to going beyond the Keynesian policies to bringing up again uh, not only common ownership of industry but industrial democracy within uh, uh, newly uh, nationalized (coughs) sectors and also positively oriented to taking the financial sector into the public domain, taking the City of London into the public domain. And lo and behold, at the 1971 party conference, against the advice of the National Executive Committee, a resolution moved by a woman who should, is not much remembered, but should be revered uh, by the Labour left today, Jo Jo Richardson. She moved a resolution uh, calling for the nationalization of Britain's banks. And lo and behold, it was passed with the unions as well as the vast majority of members, the left unions voting for it. And it was passed with a large enough majority that it should have gone into the party platform constitutionally. This kicked off a shift to the left in policy in the period in opposition uh, between 1970 and the re-election of the Labour government uh, four years later. Uh, and there was a battle royal inside the party headquarters over this. Policy at that time was made by a a range of policy committees, not this policy forum that was shunted off to the side. Uh, And and it was split between the left and the right. The Home Policy Committee was responsible for developing policy that would go into a manifesto. Uh, The finance and economic policy subsection of it was controlled by the labor right Uh, And it was desperately concerned to prevent that resolution going forward. Uh, And it managed to hive it off. The Industrial Policy Subcommittee, which was headed up by Ben and Eric Heffer, brought in a series of brilliant young intellectuals, uh, Stuart Holland, uh, the leading amongst them, uh, to try to think through what a more radical strategy then Keynesianism plus wage restraint, wage repression might lead to. And they developed what was the industrial policy of the Labour Party in that period. And if you look at the 19, the 2017 party program, <clears throat> it in many respects is not as radical. It was, was evolved at that time and, and uh, some 80 subcommittees were at work working on this. And essentially what this amounted to was a recognition uh, that Britain's economic difficulties did relate to its loss of manufacturing competitiveness in an increasingly globalized world. uh, And that if you were going to be able to operate a socially just society within that world, you needed not only much more radical policies of redistribution, a wealth tax, et cetera, Not only a degree of control over the uh, financial institutions, but you needed to recognize that simply throwing money at corporations to try to get them to invest more in manufacturing in Britain would not do it. uh, Insofar as they were convinced there was not sufficient demand and therefore they argued that it was necessary to take a certain number of manufacturing firms directly into the public sector and to supplement that with at least the public ownership of one major bank and a number of insurance companies, so you could draw on the increasing institutional funds that insurance companies held, and in that way supplement a system of what they called planning agreements, whereby other corporations would have to sign a binding agreement with the labor government to invest a certain amount in certain places, in certain ways, etc., And that essentially was the program that was evolved in 1972 and 73 that produced the very radical uh, labor program of 1973 and a resolution put to the Labor Party conference that year calling for the nationalization of 25 companies. This drove the Wilson leadership to distraction. And he immediately said, we will not abide by this when it was passed at party conference. This then connected with the demands for greater democratization of the party that Ben had articulated in that 1970 uh, pamphlet. And what was formed that year was a campaign for Labour Party democracy, which articulated the need for the reselection of MPs the need for the leader to be elected by the wider party, not just by the career politicians in the parliamentary Labour Party. That is, the whole thrust of the attempt to change the Labour Party was established by this combination of a shift to the left in policy terms towards more explicitly socialist goals, together with a recognition that to democratize the state to implement any of these you'd have to democratize the party.
1: So before, um, Hillary, I want you in on this too, but I have a question from the chat that I think follows up really nicely um, on this. Um, and I'll give maybe Hillary first, uh, first crack at it. It comes from Max Shanley and he says, um, as the sixties progressed, it became clear to Ben, um, almost uniquely inside the labor cabinet, that there were limits to labor's framework of reform and that for the post-war reforms to be maintained, there was need to go beyond them. So sort of the things that um, Leo, you just talked about. Um, I I was hoping that both of you could talk a bit more about that problem of sort of, of operationalizing that politically. So um, Max goes on here at Conference 79, Ben, uh, the problem was basically how to transition beyond capitalism whilst being forced to run the system in the first place. So at Conference 79, Ben described this issue as, quote unquote, the usual problem of the reformer. Uh, so could the two of you please talk a bit more about that problem? Uh, the questions it raises for the labor left today, as well, maybe we'll get to that later, just the questions it, it raised for the Labor Party at the time um, and what ideas you have to not get trapped by this sort of usual problem um, that affects all socialist reformers. And I'll maybe tag on a tiny bit of a question I had as well reading the book, um, was this sort of tension between the sort of bureaucratic wrangling you know, within the party about process Uh, that Leo kind of finished on as well, which isn't super exciting and that, you know, that's not the thing that most people get into politics for, um, but turned out to be necessary for actually getting your politics done. So sort of this usual problem of reformers and that tension between sort of bureaucratic inner inside the party things and sort of politics writ large.
3: Yeah, do you want me to start? Okay, so I'll approach that not, I mean, you know, maybe traditionally one would approach it in terms of the state. But I think before getting on to the state, I want to talk about the working class, i.e., the agency of of um, of, of revolutionary change or of transformation. And I think this is where Ben was at his most radical, in a way, it combined with his his critique and frustration with the, the nature of the British state. But you know, I think that one of the key things which makes him different, in my opinion, from, from the tribunite left, is that he well, he was radicalized in in fact by. The working class by the experience you know which is often talked about when he he went to um the upper Clyde shipbuilders I, the stories in leo's book so i won't repeat it in detail but basically he came out of that with a sort of real belief in the um capacity and energy of of the working class and in, and in, in that was in particularly in manufacturing in a way it led him to what you could since we've been talking about modernization an alternative view of modernization you know that that he believed that the the, um, the the people who really had a belief in changing British industry were not the rather decadent sort of complacent management of of the companies that they'd allowed to 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 basically become sort of uncompetitive, um, but actually the 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 working class and you know activists, engineers, uh, designers and so on that he met on the upper Clyde shipbuilding and that that stayed with him so that actually. The committee that um that Leo refers to, um, in which people like Stuart Holland and other um really good uh, economists were involved, I think Francis Cripps, not Francis Cripps, yeah, Francis Cripps. Anyway, mm-hmm. but, yeah, um, but also um there were some shop stewards. I mean, I remember I was working at that time with shop stewards from Vickers Um Engineering on tyneside I later worked with shop stewards in Lucas Aerospace and the main convener um, at Vickers, a guy called Jimmy Murray, he was on this committee, you know, with Stuart Holland and so on. And actually, that meant that this idea of planning agreements, which I agree with um, Leo's description of it, but the condition was not only an agreement with the Labour government, but an agreement with the workers. So actually, the 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 idea of industrial democracy was built into the process of planning agreements. So. You know, it was actually bringing um, workers' representatives into the process of industrial planning uh, and economic planning, uh, and in a way, that that was kind of fundamental. Later on, I think we're going to talk about Lucas Aerospace, but you know, that was a, in a context which is very different from now, where shop stewards' committees really were incredibly powerful. I mean, in a way, in many factories, whether it's the car industry like Ford's or so brilliantly described by Hugh Bainan in working for Ford or in or in engineering companies like like Vickers and so on they were so confident and it was reflected in the kind of the campaigning that Ben did around the country I mean in Tyneside these shop stewards got together and in the shipyards they produced their own plan and it was headed um workers control with management participation and that okay that was quite you know particular but it was it was an expression of that sort of self-confidence. And in a way, that then led, in ways we'll perhaps discuss, to a, a, a kind of conflict with the, the, the secrecy, the bureaucracy, um, and the sort of parliamentarism of the British state. I mean, I, I've, I've got it here. But when, he, when Tony Benn was in the Department of Industry, briefly, I mean, it was an incredibly, it was only about a year, I think if I'm right, Leo and that he was a minister because right from the beginning he not only tried to get involved the trade unions, the trade union officials, and as Leo describes there was sort of bemusement in the department, uh, you know, who was the confederation of ship and engineering unions, you know, because they 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 knew all the companies, you know, who were in their offices all the time and to whom they were giving money, but they didn't know the trade union movement. But Ben didn't simply convene the officials you know the the, the um, civil servants could have just you know looked up the name confederation of shipbuilding engineering units and made a phone call he actually invited in the shop stewards uh, and that would involve a real relationship with those shop stewards which was organized particularly through the Institute for workers control which we can discuss a bit later but um, this this was really what actually put the wind up the establishment because it was really valuing extra parliamentary politics, and that was a, a challenge to the to the sovereignty of parliament, which in effect is the sovereignty of the state through the symbolic, you know, sovereignty of the crown. And I'll just read a quick, very quick quote, if I may, from the um, the, the civil servant who was Ben's kind of you know um, head of department, and he said that um, he had he in particular. He paid attention to any proposal that seemed likely to infringe, this is him, Sir Anthony Part, that any proposal that seemed likely to infringe the sovereignty of parliament. So as far as possible, I tried to use as a yardstick the question: does this proposal make practical sense? And is it constitutional? Now we've got a we've got a we've got a written constitution. So none of this was democratic or transparent. It was the senior civil servants interpreting their role as to as to protect the 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 unwritten constitution, which is the elite's control of the state. And so, I mean, Ben was already acting, I mean, he was constrained. I mean, in a way, this is the contrast between him and 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 Jeremy Corbyn. He was in a shadow cabinet that was uh, not a cabinet, shadow, but a actual cabinet that was dominated by the right you know, Harold Wilson very quickly took over the writing of the industrial strategy, marginalised Ben, and then sacked Ben. So in one sense, he wasn't a threat, but you got a glimpse of why he was seen as a threat because of this this opening um, to extra parliamentary pressure and and to building the expectations of particularly workers in manufacturing. I mean, I I don't want to generalise too much because You know, I was very influenced by this experience on Tyneside where he absolutely did um, raise the expectations of those workers, similarly in Coventry, in any manufacturing area. So, I mean, I think um, You know, he would he would say that he was a reformist who meant it and being a reformist that meant it meant that he he exerted and tried to mobilize every possible kind of power, but he came up against not simply the British state, Sir Anthony Parton's on, but a Labour Party that protected the British, the British state. And I think at some point we need to discuss the the fact that actually, and again, I can quote, you know, the Labour Party is af- actually often as more conservative than the Tory party. There's a very good quote from Peregrine Wursthorne, who was a Tory um, journalist in the, um, I think, in the 80s. And he said he was contemplating the sort of battle inside the party. And he said, much of the stability of this country uh, depended on the Labour Party, which in some ways was just as powerful a force for continuity and tradition uh, as the Tory party. And this is partly because it's a party that rests on the organized working class, but yet it contains the organized working class. It sort of provides a kind of protection uh, uh, of the parliamentary state uh, against the working class, so that there are moments when the working class kind of breaks through its militancy in the workplace, is reflected in a struggle within the party. um, And the 70s was one of them, that then begins to to break through. And that's why the whole issue of reselection, you know, reselection seems very kind of moderate. but actually it was like when when it began to happen just all hell was broken loose i mean it was like seen as a threat to everything you know the queen nato you know it was like a, a threat to the state effectively and and so you know that's it's like you know the 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 movement has stood on 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 the balls of the state you know and, and the state is screaming and you know this is because it's, it's challenging, that parliamentary domination. Anyway, I could go on, but I
0: won't. Thank you, Hilary. I'd love to see the movement to uh, deselect the Queen. Um, <laughs> anyway, so before we go over to Leah, we're just going to bring in a question which is related. So in your response, you can li- link it into kind of what, what's been said before, but also this question from John Merrick, which is uh, that the status left and more libertarian left have consistently reflected attention in socialist thought and practice. It was started to be discussed last session. So in those talks that we had about democratizing nationalization models and developing other models of common and social ownership, um, but politics was always regarded as a priority over economy. Uh, do you think the divorce of politics and economics has been damaging to the quest to, to create socialism?
3: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where to begin. You were going to ask me a question about Lucas, so I prepared notes on that, but that kind of illustrates it. So, um, I mean, in a way, that separation is like um, a protection of the market. It's like a protection of both the market, you know, because economics is seen as as apolitical, as sort of in the sphere of the market, and politics is handed over um, to the Labour Party, i.e. to Parliament. So it meant that there was always a um, a sort of reluctance of um, the trade unions. Or trade union activists to, or, or not just a reluctance. It was more like a culture imbued by the, the the leadership and the structures of the unions, not to be engaged in politics themselves. That wasn't to say they weren't involved in the Labour Party, but it, they were like delegating issues of politics, issues of industrial strategy, issues of the welfare state to the Labour Party. Now that, in a way, the condition for that was the Keynesian sort of settlement. That, in a way, the Keynesian settlement sort of protected the um uh, that separation of politics and economics because it enabled trade unions to make gains um, through with bargaining um, <clears throat> uh, and through the, the redistribution of of um, of surplus through the bargaining wage relationship. but when that broke down and also when you got globalisation and and the impacts of international competition, so you had closures. You had um, introduction of new technology, rationalizations, restructuring. Then, in a way, um, the, the existing forms of trade union bargaining, concentrating only on wages and conditions, were inadequate. And that's what led so many shop stewards committees. I mean, Lucas is the one that's well known. But there were many shop stewards committees who, firstly, they would occupy their factory saying, actually, we're not redundant, you know, our skills, our capacity are needed. And so they would occupy the factory, but that wasn't really sufficient of a bargaining position because these companies were multi plant, multinational, and they could just move the assets elsewhere. That's what they were going to do anyway. Um, and so uh, they began to think about alternative strategies. So in the case of the Lucas plan, which maybe you'll ask me about more in detail, but they, they, they decided, well, okay, we we've got to put forward our own plan. You know, we've got to defend production. Um, and a bit like the the slightly different from the UCS people, didn't just occupy that, they had a what was called a work-in, they carried on working. And so they were already challenging that division between politics and um and economics. And I think that um, you know, in a way, that's what Ben did. He 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 broke that taboo. you know, he he brought together economics and politics in the way that he, he developed an industrial strategy that presumed a highly political um, trade union movement. But I, I haven't, I mean, because I'm enthusiastic about this experience, I, I might seem to exaggerate. It, it, it was mainly the manufacturing sector. And although later on, Ben's campaign, the alternative economic strategy was also about fighting the cuts. Because you've got to remember, 1976, the most massive cuts in public spending Ever so, I remember on Tyneside there was not only the the the, the organising around the industrial strategy, but that then was combined with public sector workers fighting against the cuts, and all this produced a very political um, labour movement in a place like Tyneside that was kind of in spite of the Labour Party, you know, a local, the local council was run by fairly reactionary. Well, well it's the reactionary, but but right right. Right-of-center Labour Party people. So this was a movement outside, but but with some links in, and that led, you know, people to think of new forms of organisation. We created a thing called the Socialist Centre, which was sort of um, inside people inside and outside the Labour Party coming together, creating a bookshop and an alternative centre for political education. So there was all this experimentation, which was. About a different, it was it it was a kind of searching for socialism, but searching for strategy, socialist strategy that was that was not, you know, insurrectionary, so not revolutionary in that sense, but wasn't within the framework of reforming, ameliorating the existing state or existing capitalism. So it was a very you know rich period, but I should stop. I think
1: um leo why don't we give you a crack at uh this whole web of questions that we've now uh we've now sort of sprouted and, and give you five minutes to answer all of that and give us a satisfactory answer as well please uh you,
2: you'd better wave to me with your fingers as i start approaching five minutes uh where does one begin i i think uh y- crucial here to this whole discussion is uh especially to pick up Max Shanley's point about Ben's speech at the 79-party conference on we have to live up to the challenge of the reformer, which is to be committed to changing the system and yet knowing that we have to change it for the people that we are responsible to while they continue to be dependent on the system. Uh, and it's important to recognize that he said that in the context of responding for the National Executive Committee uh, to a militant resolution calling for the immediate nationalization of the top 250 companies in Britain. This was a constant resolution that Militant put forward, and Ben was telling people to vote against it. And essentially, he was articulating uh, a a view uh, uh, that he held very, very strongly, uh, which is that there really are no serious revolutionaries in Britain, to pick up Hillary's point about the so-called 1968 revolution, uh, that nobody really believed that you could in one go smash the existing state and introduce socialism. That uh, everybody was in one way or another putting forward a strategy for getting into parliament and developing then the capacity and uh, the orientation to winning popular support for a set of radical democratizing and socialist measures. Now, I say all this, I begin with all this because. There is, I think, a, a, it's important to recognize that in 1970, the majority of people who were uh, insubordinate in the 1968 sense of the word, would not have been caught dead in the Labour Party. They went off to form better Leninist parties, including Hillary, if I may say so, for a period of time, and that's what led her to write with Sheila Robotham and Lynn Siegel that incredibly brilliant book on the limitations of the far left, beyond the fragments, the organizational and ideological limitations of them. Um, and, and so this was a matter all along for the labor new left of picking up the energy the popular orientation, the democratizing orientation, yes, the participant orientation of the 1960s generation, but bringing it into the party to change it. I myself took the view that that was an impossible thing to happen. I admired it enormously, was convinced it would fail. And to some extent, unfortunately, I was proved right, and perhaps proved right again uh, in, in the most current context but it was a very admirable attempt because it was sober uh, rather than naively insurrectionary as to how change could come about. Now what was also especially significant about Ben about the new left generally that went into the party as opposed to the old left was while they had to work very closely with radical trade unionists whether they were socialists as general secretaries or the shop stewards Hillary is speaking of. They were not oriented to what the old left was, what the communist party leadership was, which was above all to give priority to a common front against a reactionary Tory government. And that's what drove Michael Foote He was the Lincoln buckle with the left-wing union leaders, but the main thing he wanted was to ensure that they did not split with the right of the Labour Party, with the Roy Jenkins uh, and and Heliites, et cetera. And his main orientation, however much he supported a shift to the left in in policy terms, was to try to keep that link between the right in the party and the left in the party as a top priority. It was a popular front strategy, if you like, for those of you who know the 1960s anti-fascist orientation. Whereas Ben and the new left that came into the party as they realized the Leninist strategy and just the general campaign strategy wasn't changing the world, uh, was to push a confrontation around the need to democratize the party in order to get the socialist policies through. And what was remarkable about Ben was that by 1971, he was going to trade union conferences. The TUC itself, the engineering union, which was then run by a former communist uh, who was very uh, traduced even by the old labor left. Barbara Castle once said to Hugh Scanlon, leader of the engineering union when he was opposing wage restraint. Get your tanks off my lawn, Huey. And she was, of course, implying that he was a Stalinist supporter of the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, So that old Cold War stuff was operating. But Ben went to those conferences and said, look, you left-wing unions will vote for radical resolutions at conference. But do you expend any effort trying to educate your membership in this stuff? Are you trying to make your members into socialists? Are you trying to get them beyond the goal of higher acquisitiveness, as he put it, by getting higher wages? So he was challenging the unions themselves, and sometimes even going as far for them to be called, for them to turn towards being more democratic themselves which the labor left has always been afraid to do. This was very, very important. And I think it has to be said that the radical shop stewards that Hillary was so close to and has done so much to show what what they were about in terms of industrial democracy and, and the transformation of industry into producing socially useful things. They themselves did not represent the attitudes of the vast majority of uh, their trade union comrades. And they weren't very good about turning them into socialists either. Uh, And so what was going on there was not only a need to democratize the party, but a need to democratize the whole labor movement. And insofar as it didn't succeed either then or now, that has a lot to do with that failure. I'm sure my five minutes are up.
1: We're, we have about 20 minutes left. So we're thinking of sort of switching tracks now, moving the discussion up to the present, um, thinking about the experiences of the new left. um, Everything we talked about so far and what they have to offer sort of uh, in terms of lessons for, you know, in some ways, the very different world we're in today, in some ways, some of the same uh, problems we're facing. I'll start off with maybe a a short question just to carry on off of what Leo was saying about the labor movement, you know, in the in the 70s and and Ben's sort of relationship with it. We've had a bunch of questions in the chat. Just about sort of the rejuvenation of unions, Hillary, you've uh, mentioned the Lucas plan a couple times Maybe you could talk a bit more about maybe not as much that experience itself, but sort of the what what its legacy is and what lessons we can learn for for today from um, from that experience and you know what what still resonates, what maybe um, what maybe does doesn't as much. Um, and just generally you know about the relationship between the unions and the labor party today when we are seeing maybe a bit less in the UK than, than say in the US, but some reemergence of sort of labor activism from below. Um, we've had a question too about uh, the radicalization of uh, political black workers in the 70s fighting for, uni- for unionization and we see some more campaigns. For unionization itself um, and especially around the coronavirus pandemic uh, that question has really risen to the fore with this you know key workers essential workers all of that um so maybe just a you know another five minutes on unions and labor party today and all those lessons
3: okay i mean i'll talk briefly because actually there are other people here i can see jane shallis who can talk a lot about the teachers which is obviously very crucial Uh, and there'll be other people here maybe from the newer unions the uh international workers and so on um so i'll just say um one thing about the or maybe two things about the lucas aerospace experience i mean its legacy now seems to be mostly and rightly um to do with um technology and alternative products and the idea that um uh, you know now the issue is 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 conversion of of a low of a high carbon economy to a to a low carbon economy or at least that's crucial and in a way the lesson from lucas is that is that key to that is actually production itself and technology and the the one of the key points about the lucas plan was actually and um, in a way it was an influence from the six from 68 where the critique of technology and science had been a product really of the whole experience of the of the Vietnam War and the use of napalm and chemical warfare. And that led to um, you know, a radicalization of, of scientists and designers like Mike Cooley, you know, who, who began to see technology as political, not only in its use, but also its design. So they, um, when faced with redundancies and, and the, man- the white hot heat of technology imposed from government and management, said, well, hang on a minute, we're the people that design that technology. And we know that there are alternative uses to that, as well as alternative designs as to how it's, how it's used and how, how it's developed and the role of, of labor of people and of workers in, in, the work, in the labor process. So um, I think now in thinking about um, the move away from our present high carbon forms of production, we, any new, Green New Deal has got to have a very um, radical um, critique of the, the existing power relationships and forms of ownership of um, of industry and has got to be closely allied with the trade union movement, the base of the trade union movement, um, and that requires its democratisation. I mean, another feature of the Lucas Plan was that it was the product of a, what was called the combine committee, which meant... It brought together the, all the unions in the workplace, the, the skilled union, <clears throat> the AUW TASS. I mean, now a lot of these are involved in UNITE. But it brought together all these unions. And then it brought together uni- you know, the representatives from all the different sites, 13 different factories across the, com- the, com- the country. But yet, for its efficacy, for its power, it depended on, on each of the, those site organizations, those factory organizations. So when it had its meetings, it couldn't just, the representatives couldn't just take a decision and say, okay, we'll decide to do an alternative plan and then we instruct our members. No, it had every every shop steward, and I would sit, on, sit in on these meetings, had to talk about what they thought their members would accept. So there was a kind of real sensitivity to, to the views of the members, the members would discuss the agenda of the combined committee before the meeting. So this meant that when it came to the alternative plan and the idea of asking the members what they, what the alternatives they had, there was already a culture of believing in, and needing and being accountable to the, the knowledge and capacity of and intelligence of the members. So democracy was built into and a participatory, sort of consciousness raising democracy um, was built into their culture. And so that in a way points to the idea that any radical trade unionism now has to be really deeply democratic. And, and so democratization isn't just some kind of add on, you know, extra, it is actually fundamental to a, to a radical trade unionism. Um, and I think the other thing is the, the reaching out, the connecting to, to the community uh, and so, not accepting the boundaries of the workplace, um, and I think many of these things have got lessons for how the new trade unionism develops its kinds of democracy. And finally, a concern with the content, the purpose of of production, which again, you know, um, from talking to to Jane Shallice, you know, is a feature of the teachers' union. They they're not just concerned with wages and conditions; they're concerned with the purpose and content of education. Um, so I think democratization of the unions is absolutely key, and that maybe that's something that, in a sense, you know, was a problem for, for the Corbyn movement, that actually that process of democratization in the unions had not take place taken place. There wasn't a a process of transformation in unions like Unite. Um, and so I think that is a crucial, you know, new sphere of if not struggle, but, but political consciousness raising, organizational consciousness raising. I mean, in a way learning from experiences that, that TWT, I mean, TWT's methods of organization are really exemplary. Your ability to organize very open, very sort of genuinely participatory forms, you know, is something that the unions could learn from. And so somehow infecting the unions with that kind of culture would be, um, a remarkable achievement because that's a condition of industrial power you can't you can't i think there was a quote from an early shop steward movement a year early shop steward in the 19, in the early 20th century saying you know you can't have solidarity between sheep i you know you, you, solidarity is between you know intelligent people and that needs to be built and, and that capacity needs to be organized as a sort of collective sharing and developing of knowledge and capacity but, but I think bringing others that know more about about other modern you know contemporary developments in the unions, or, or I'd I'd say to them please come in. <laughs> we
0: will give Leo
1: a crack.
2: Well, I, I think it, it's very important and a very a very uh, I think salutary thing uh, that in the current conjuncture there seems to be a great deal of sympathy and support uh, amongst industrial workers for the campaigns and demands of public sector workers. And I think that precedes the pandemic. Uh, It's a response to the recognition, I think on the part of all workers of the way in which austerity in the public sector has impacted negatively on their own lives and a recognition of how hard done by those who have provided the essential services that the public sector provides uh, to meet basic needs uh, have have been uh, uh, taken away. Um, This is very, very different from what happened by the late 1970s when there was this last movement to transform the Labour Party into a party of socialist advance. The winter of discontent was a moment of public sector radicalism, uh, which industrial workers were largely alienated from and critical of. Uh, And and the shift that took place to support the reaction uh, of the Kinnickites who had been part of the Tribunite left against the labor new left, the alliance between Foote and Healy against the labor new left, which got the support of the industrial unions, it reflected that alienation, if you like, between the public sector campaigns and the uh, manufacturing unions. Uh, And and, uh, in the current situation, I think things are very different. And that makes makes me very hopeful. Uh, I think it's a very important difference between uh, why this could, could the campaign could continue now more successfully than then. What makes me less hopeful is the reaction of even Unite, let alone the GMB, uh, to Corbyn's commitment to do away with Trident this was never adopted under Corbyn's leadership by the Labour Party Uh, and the reason it wasn't adopted was that the unions that represented workers there didn't want it and insofar as they didn't want it it was because they didn't have an orientation to the type of conversion of industry that Hillary is talking about and there wasn't much pressure as there had been uh, from the Institute of Workers' Control, which some of the union leadership was, of course, supportive of and financed and was close to in the 1970s. Now, we see today in the, in the context of this pandemic how essential it is and how people will respond positively to a campaign to turn uh, production of Unnecessary, harmful, whether to the environment or to peace. Uh, Manufacturing production to the production of goods that are needed for meeting basic needs. Uh, And here uh, in Canada, uh, not far from Toronto, the largest General Motors plant was closed last year. And a Green Worker Alliance emerged that called for that plant uh, to be taken over to broaden public ownership and turned into the production of uh, environmentally useful goods. They didn't have the foresight to see that it should have been turned into the production of ventilators, uh, as well as what is now being used for the production of masks, which only involves bringing 50 workers back. But the, the importance of this couldn't be clearer in the context of this pandemic. Uh, this was on the agenda in the 1970s already, uh, as Hillary reminds us more than anyone. And it needs to become uh, much more on the agenda today than it has been, and that the unions, even the left-wing unions, have allowed it to be. Does that help?
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, that was really, really interesting. Um, I'm- for those of you who've, who can see the chat, there's also been a really good complementary discussion going mm-hmm. on in the chat, so do try to read over that as well. Um, so we're just going to try and wrap it up now, I think, with a question just to close it, uh, which is to ask a little bit about the legacy of the New Left project. Um, and I think we've got really important lessons for uh, for you know thinking about the current moment for the Left in the Labour Party for us as well. Um, so one of the problems that Leo and Colin identify in the book is that while the project did successfully train and develop new activists and bring them into the state, they didn't manage to consolidate their ideas into any enduring institutional form. Um, Can you tell us, so can you talk about what your main analysis of why you think that is um, and what lessons we can draw from that today? We can start with Hilary. Oh. Mm. Um,
3: Well, I think think that, in some ways it wasn't lack of interest, it was lack of opportunity. In some ways um, the movement to um, achieve reselection actually was quite an institutional movement. It tried to institutionalize um, the democratic aspirations of the, um, you know, of the movement around Tony Benn and the movement around policy. So in a way there was, um, although the emphasis often was about policy, increasingly people were concerned with with institutions and with accountability and with with democracy and certainly you could say that many of the moves in local government like um the um the the move to the left in in the glc was quite an institutional move i mean in some ways many people were beginning to find the limits to purely movement politics and uh, I mean, even within those movements, there was a lot of debate about, about lasting institutional forms. So in the women's movement, for example, um, we have this whole debate about the tyranny of structuralistness. Now, in a way, that realization of, and recognition of the tyranny of, of lack of structure, lack of institutional form, that, that was a sign that people were taking, beginning to take questions of institutions and structure Seriously. I mean, we didn't come up with answers, but I think there was an interest, and in, you know, these shop stewards combine committees, they were they they developed their own constitutions, they were quite institutionally um sophisticated. The question was the state was was relating to state institutions and 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 attempting to change state institutions. And that, in a way, Ben's ben, the experience of Tony Ben was that he, he both came up against the limits of the party, but also the limits of the state. And um, in a way, that 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 was a real impasse. There wasn't the balance of power wasn't wasn't favorable enough to take that any further. But at a local level, in a way, we did experiment with pushing that. So, at a local level, without going into too much detail, in London, which was, in a way, more than local. I mean, it was a, had a budget and, and size equivalent to many countries. We, we did engage with the, the view that we couldn't just talk about policies. We had a very detailed manifesto that the Labour left had drawn up. But we were, we were appointed, a lot of us who weren't in the Labour Party, and we weren't asked to be in the Labour Party, know we weren't you know saying they weren't saying to us ken livingston wasn't saying you know like where's your party card we just were there because we had experience of you know participatory democracy or working with uh shop stewards i mean there were several shop stewards themselves like from fords who actually worked in our popular planning unit but we had right from the beginning an approach that we can't implement policy without changing the state and actually that that Led to a very creative collaboration with Leo and people in Ontario who were beginning to try a similarly left government. It didn't get very far because it wasn't really a left political leadership, but that led to this conference that Leo organized on a different kind of state. So, in a way, we, right from that moment, we developed an idea that, you know, this was a time when privatization was beginning to get underway. So we would say, no, You know, we're against privatization, but we're not defending the existing state. We're saying that, that democratization is an alternative to privatization. There was this very famous book now called In and Against the State, which was saying, yes, we need to defend the, um, the distribution of resources so that public money, this taxation that leads to public resources uh, and public spending and public services But they need to be administered in a more democratic way. So that led to, later on, to struggles against privatization, which were also about struggles to reform the state. So I think a lot of those ideas have their roots in the 70s, which you could say was both an era, a decade of movements, of strong movements, um, both in the public sector and in manufacturing. but it was also a, a moment a decade in which people began to take institutions seriously. I don't know,
2: Leah now, what Leah thinks. Uh, no, no, I, I agree with that. I think the question was, you know, what legacy did uh, the attempt to change the party uh, and that new left inside the party uh, leave? Uh, And, you know, most obviously uh, it left the socialist campaign group inside the party, that group of MPs that had broken with the tribune group of MPs at the time that Foote aligned with Healy uh, to defeat the Labour New Left and um, that came to a head around Foote's election as leader and um, uh, Ben sidelining for running as leader And then Healy's very, very narrow defeat of of Ben uh, in the deputy leadership campaign with foot support. So a small group of MPs then formed the Socialist Campaign Group. And, you know, uh, people like me, and I think Hillary, but certainly me, uh, you know, uh, admired them, uh, including Jeremy and John, once he was elected, John McDonnell, which he was elected, um, but but thought they were uh, spent force. And then lo and behold, they rise from the ashes like a phoenix to nominate Jeremy. Um, And even that I thought was as far as they could ever get. Uh, And then draw in hundreds of thousands of young people to get him elected. Uh, Who would have believed it? So the legacy most astonishingly was that this incredibly marginalized group in the Labour Party, which of course had a lot to do with the fact that Britain, like Canada and the United States, has a first-past-the-post electoral system. Had there been a PR system, it's not unlikely that those MPs would have gone into some realignment of the the kind that happened with Euro-communists and Trotskyists and Maoists and left social Democrats in those countries in Europe where there's proportional representation. Uh, And then Jeremy never would have been leader of the Labour Party. Um, but that, that was a legacy. What, what they would, the legacy that was not left there with them uh, was this radicalism that Hillary's been getting at uh, in the labor movement. The defeats suffered by trade unionism uh, were massive uh, in the 1980s. Uh, And, you know, those defeats were delivered uh, at the hands of the Thatcherites and Reaganites, but they were also delivered often at the hands of mainstream European social Democrats, Um, not very distinguishable from Blair's new labor. Um, And in the wake of that, the kind of energy that the Institute for Workers' Control, etc., had provided, in the labor movement for the types of things we're talking about um, were not sustained, partly because they weren't funded as much. What was also going on, one has to say, uh, is uh, while Hillary and I uh, being the stubborn people we are kept on with this, most intellectuals who were enthused by this in the 1970s turned away from class politics turned away from the need to democratize the institutions uh, towards a, I think, rather superficial identity politics, uh, which labeled every identity a movement, uh, and saw the future lying in that, even though they at the same time rejected any notion of a grand narrative move towards socialism. In other words, there was a treason of the intellectuals in these decades. And, and, and that's important as well. Uh, some of that took place as people in Britain very know, know very well uh, within the communist party and that produced the kind of Marxism today ideology briefly. Uh, so that too was, was not a legacy that was continued. But I do think that both with, uh, uh, you know, what, what Jeremy and John and the campaign group managed to hold on to And I'd immodestly say what Hillary and I and Colin and people like us and people on this, so many who I recognize um, on this Zoom connection kept on with. uh, That was the legacy that then linked this all to a new generation, which even after uh, Jeremy's defeat uh, or the team of Jeremy's defeat, if you like, um, I think we'll carry this forward in a very creative way in the 21st century.
3: Mm. Yeah. Can I add one thing? Okay, so I think the other legacy, um, is, is a kind of a a confidence in a, in a, in an alternative left, an alternative socialism. I mean, Leah's book is called Searching for Socialism, and I, I mean obviously We do need to keep searching keep experimenting because you know it's not it's not found it never will be found it's got to be made and that process of making it is going to be a long one um but i think that ben uh, you know he was he, he his caricature was never accurate i mean they were i remember in the in the similarly with the glc um norman tebbit at one point in a speech in the us said this is modern socialism and we must kill it i the idea of a, a socialism that was open that that was democratic that couldn't be labeled as sort of soviet command economy you know all this you know was a, was a threat i mean in a way ben wasn't as sort of widely you know popular at certain points as, as jeremy was but i think that jeremy also was able you know in 17, 1917 no, 2017 to convey that idea of a a humane a kind of humane socialism a democratic socialism and we've got to hold on to that that idea of combining the 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 transformative power from below with a democratic state supporting that that liberating emancipatory power within society that belong that's that's a capacity of all of us, but needs needs support, so needs the support of different the state at different kinds of levels. So, so continuing that process of experimentation, you know, including from the experiences of this pandemic and all the forms of solidarity that have been produced, and and developing a, a vision in which could be practiced in the Labour Party, um, but You know, I think a lot of us will probably feel the emphasis now must be on building that capacity from below and then attempting to fashion uh, the Labour Party to support it. um, But maintaining our autonomy uh, in society, in, in the movements outside the Labour Party. And in a way, I feel this is what TWT has achieved and what any kind of reformed momentum could achieve.
0: I think that's a really good note to finish it on. Thank you so much. Um, that was a that was an incredible discussion. Really, really interesting. I learned so much. I think I'm going to have to watch it again <laughs> to really learn everything that was being said. But just to say again, I'd really, really recommend Le- both Leo and Colin and Hilary's books on these topics. Leo and Colin, um, Searching for Socialism, and Hilary Rainwright, A New Politics for the Left, from the Left. Where you can, these arguments are made really strongly and they bring in fantastic anecdotes. They really just take you back into that moment. Um, So, do check out those books if you're interested in reading more. Um, So, we're nearly at the end of the call. Uh, We just wanted to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, So, TWT are trying to organize as many online spaces for people to interact as possible. Uh, TWT have created a step by step guide for supporting people to run political education and organizing meetings online. Uh, So we'll post a link in the chat now. Um, Keep an eye out for reading groups and all these other kinds of political education, organizing meetings, and of course, tune in to the call the same time in two weeks.
1: Um, And I will make one more plug. Finally, if you are able to join, uh, please do join the TWT Supporters Network. Um, As we said, it helps us put on uh, events like this one, uh, a, a conference later on this year, and all sorts of other political education, which is more important than ever, today, um, and this crisis really does pose an existential risk uh, to a lot of things, but also to small organizations like ours. Um, I think that link will also be in the chat. It's theworldtransformed.org uh, slash support. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with Leo again um, and his guest, uh, John Trickett. I don't know if they'll be du- you know, playing dueling bookcases uh, in the background as well, like we, uh, like we had today. Um, They'll be talking about uh, new labor and the wilderness uh, for the left in the 90s and 2000s. Um, And that's it. We'll see you then. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. See you two Thursdays from now.